KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I always tell people, read whatever you read, whatever you like, and try to understand what the writer does that you like. It doesn't have to be, it could be a short story, it could be a novel, it could be a biography, it could be news, it could be sports, it could be a feature, it could be a game story. Why do you like this article? What do you like about this? And try to learn what they do to be effective and see if you can incorporate that into what you do. And our guest this week is Tom Moore, longtime sports columnist for the Bucks County Courier Times and Gannett U.S. USA Today. He's been a Sixers beat writer for the Courier Times for 33 years, and he's covered just about everything in the area. Tom, thanks so much for joining me. Sure, Matt. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, as we're recording this late June, uh, what is life like for you? The Sixers just wrapped up a disappointing playoff run. Do you get a little chance here to come up for air with the the Sixers season uh, in you know put away for now? Yeah, I actually am getting uh, three or four days off uh, this week, which is nice after some busy weeks with the Sixers, especially, you know, playing every other day there from game, I guess, four through seven. It was, you know, game, Doc Rivers, media, you know, Zoom availability game, Doc Rivers, Zoom ability game, you know, et cetera. So, yeah, uh, quiet it down a little bit and be doing some Phillies and, Maybe some Eagles and some, you know, Sixers draft uh, coming up. But yes, kind of chance to take a deep breath and uh, relax a little bit, come up for air um, after a you know pretty busy last couple months. How has the last year and a half changed how you do your job? I mean, you mentioned Zoom, and that's obviously become part of everyone's life. But has it allowed you to become more nimble? Is it tougher to to cover a team? Where would you kind of place it on the spectrum? Yeah, I mean, it's easier to cover a team without going to games, I guess I would say. You can access the Zoom calls and everything, you know, without. And even on the road, like you can access the the Zoom calls when they're in Sacramento and L.A. and, you know, Phoenix, wherever. Um, But I would say it's made it's made for more of pack journalism. You know, you can't help it because. Everybody, essentially, unless you can get a one-on-one, I got one one-on-one with Doc Rivers early in the season, was able to do some different stuff that way. But if you're just doing the pack, you know, you can't grab a guy to the side or say, can I talk to this guy um, or, you know, at practice off to the side or whatever. So it's made for more similar stories by everybody, which is not good for anybody. But as I said, it's made it made it teams more accessible to people either that don't have to cover games or, um, on the road, you can cover almost like you're at home. So good and bad, in my opinion, more bad than good, at least for the readers anyway. Do you think we're going to see the old days come back? Or do you think teams have gotten pretty comfortable with being able to just throw a Zoom link out and that'll be your access for the day? I think it'll probably be some sort of hybrid. I think I don't think we'll get the access. Like we used to have access to the locker room. Uh, up until 45 minutes before Sixers home games. I don't think that's going to come back. I have a feeling that's gone for good. Although we would only get maybe Tobias Harris. There weren't a lot of players available for it, but still, you know, you might get something out of it pregame, but yeah, I, I think, I think the teams like being able to control better. So I think that the days of that access are gone. It's just a question of how will we be closer to what we used to have or closer to what we've been doing the last, you know, year or so. And I'm not sure what the answer is there. So your career as a sports writer, was this always the goal growing up 
that you wanted to write about sports? And if so, kind of what do you think was the genesis of it? My father is also Tom Moore, but a different middle name, had a full-time job, but for extra money in the mid-late 60s into the 70s, covered high school football, basketball, and baseball games. And I loved sports and I would tag along with him. So I got to go to the the old Bucksmont games with Penridge and Quakertown and Satterton and Hapro Horsham and Central Bucks West and North Penn and so on. So I kind of, you know, and I, I certainly wasn't a good enough athlete to play at a high level in, in college, let alone professional. So um, that's kind of where, um, you know, I started writing in high school and um, continued writing in college. I went to Syracuse and I was a sports editor of the Daily Orange, worked five days a week. Uh, there were two of us sports editors from like March of my junior year to March of my senior year, got to travel covering the football games, the basketball games, and up there lacrosse is the big sport in the spring, the the men's lacrosse. So that's where I really got a taste of it and really decided that's what I wanted to do, you know, for sure, you know, long-term. I went there actually as a history major. I liked history, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. And then transferred into the Newhouse School of Communications um, and got my degree and you know, ended up covering high schools for three years and then became the Sixers beat writer in June of 88 and kind of have been going, going since then. Going to high school, I mean, you, you went to Penridge, right? Correct. Were there journalism classes or anything, or was it just you wrote for the school paper? I wrote for the school paper, but then there was a weekly newspaper called the News Herald, which is was a combination of the S- Percocy News and Sellersville Herald, two little t- tiny towns, and it came out every Wednesday, and the sports editor there had a club at the high school. So I actually was able to write stories on basketball and other events, uh, some of which I participated in, most of which I did not, and got more of a hands-on you know, experience interviewing the coaches afterward. One day I asked the coach, how come you didn't play that more kid you know, in, in, the, in our 52-point loss to North Penn in boys basketball? But uh, stayed mostly professional and kind of really got a taste there. And then when I went to Syracuse, I think I I started doing cross country and track where I would write weekly stories on what they did over the weekend and so on. And then, as I said, kind of worked my way up to be a sports editor my junior year. So yeah, always liked it. I loved sports and it just kind of, that's just kind of the way it worked out. So you graduate from Syracuse, I think in 85. Uh, Do you have a job ready or what, what are those weeks leading down to graduation like and uh what were your options yeah i did not have a job had sent resumes out did not have anything yet came home to upper bucks county and i think i did some stringing for the intelligencer in doylestown just covering new stuff and then i think i did some sports stuff filling in although the summer's kind of quiet and then i want to say i started there full-time in august i graduated in may so there was about a three-month window where i didn't have anything full-time and did high schools, uh, Archbishop Wood and William Tennant primarily for two years. Then I did Central Bucks East and Central Bucks West for a year, um, covering CB West football with you know Mike Petton and so on, which was really enjoyable. And then in 88, the guy who had covered the Sixers for the Burlington County Times decided to leave the profession, and they replaced him. They wanted somebody on the desk 12 months out of the year, so they opened the position up. And I interviewed and was able to get the Sixers job at the age of 24. And my first four years were Charles Barkley's last four years. So they won the division my second year, uh, won a playoff series, and then lost to the Jordan and the Bulls. That's one of the pleasures of my career was seeing Michael Jordan for five games in May of 90 and May of 91 
before he had that fade away and just would attack the basket. I think my the nineties conference semifinals, he averaged 44 points a game against the Sixers just was, and the Sixers led in four of the five games. He just was unstoppable. And just to see somebody that good and playing at the old Chicago stadium, which was loud and you had to come up steps from the locker room to get to the, the, the court. It just was such a great atmosphere. And to see a guy who was 27 and 28 at the, at, you know, in his prime in terms of basketball wise was just, just a pleasure. I, it, it was the most amazing two playoff series I ever covered with Jordan. And 91 was the first of their six titles. They won them in 91 through 93. He took a year and a half off to play basketball and then won them again from 96 to 98. So 24 years old. And you said that was the Burlington County times or was Burlington it a series County of newspapers? Had, they had somebody covering the Sixers, right? And they, when he left, they decided they didn't want somebody in the office half the year covering the Sixers half the year. They wanted a full-time desk person, open it up to the other papers the Courier Times, I think, already had Wayne Fish covering the Flyers, and they had a, a Phillies writer. So they opened it up to the Intelligencer in Doylestown, since Doylestown didn't have any pro beat writers, and interviewed, and I got the job. And that's kind of you know when it started, and really was doing very similar to what I did when I was at the Daily Orange at Syracuse. I would cover the games in the Eastern Conference and fly in and cover the games and write the story and then fly home or fly on to the next city and you know, had great access on the road. There were only three or four of us traveling in those days. Bob Ford was covering for the Inquirer, the great Phil Jasner for the Daily News. Bob Groats, I think, was on for the Delco Times. And, um, you know, it was a good time. And practices were open, great access. Jimmy Lynham was the coach. It just was a lot of fun and so different from even pre-COVID days of covering the NBA, you know, in the 21st century. 24 years old, getting to do this stuff, seeing these games, and you've already, you know, just in you talk about those first four years with Barkley and everything and Jordan, did you appreciate what you were getting to do at that young age? Or was it just like, ah, this is how it's supposed to work. I think at first I was, I was really kind of gaga a little bit and, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure out how things go protocol. John Nash was the general manager and how you contact somebody. It's interesting. A lot of the general managers over the years, off the record to them means doesn't mean off the record. It essentially means on background. It means you can use it. You can't use my name. So it took me a while to figure that out because I would take it literally and wouldn't use it. And then I would realize, oh, you can use it. You just have to say an NBA source or whoever it is, you know. So it was a bit of an adjustment period. Um, there were a lot of guys that had been on the beat for a number of years. But then once we got in the playoffs, you know, in 90 and 91, had this series I sort of was became one of the guys more, even though I was covering a lot of the games, you know, more games than most of those, uh, you know, folks were. And then kind of, you know, really felt comfortable. And and one thing I've done and, and I've tried to do is when new people are on the beat, regardless of who or where or what, try to help them out because I didn't get a whole lot of help when I started. And you don't know what's going on. I see Stephen A. Smith to this day. He thanks me for being the only quote, the only person who was nice to him when he started on the beat. So people are aware of when you help them and when you do nice things. He's always been nice and appreciative to me, you know, um, just when I saw him at game seven against the Hawks too, you know, was always chat, chatty and friendly. So, um, and Dave Schaller from the Sixers, who's, you know, VP of communications was an intern and I congratulate him and he thanked me for treating him really well when he was an intern. And, you know, you just never know who, what, when, where, and it can't hurt you to be, you know, decent and nice to people down the road. How long do you feel it took you to become a good beat writer? Because you mentioned you're learning on the run and 
you are surrounded by legends, you know, regardless how much help they may or may not given you. How many years do you think it took you till you really felt like you had a handle on what it took to be a good B writer? Yeah, probably a couple years. Um, you know, Phil Jasner was was the first thing Phil told, Phil's advice was join every hotel and and an airline frequent flyer, you know, program available. And the other thing he always said, which I've tried to do, always look ahead. If the Sixers trade somebody, don't dwell on the guy they traded away. Look ahead to the guy that's coming in, even though they don't the fans don't necessarily know who they, they are, but they're going to be here for an undefined amount of time. And I always thought that was good, you know, and don't dwell on Friday night's game, look ahead to Sunday's game, that kind of thing. And I think that's been really good, helpful advice when things happen rather than write an appreciation, unless it's Allen Iverson getting traded, obviously, or, you know, a, a special circumstance of a, an all-star, a Hall of Fame type player, Barkley, et cetera. Clearly that's a, that's a big deal. But other than that, that, you know, they've been really helpful. And Bob Ford was helpful, turned me on to all different music and, you know, just, just it just was it was it just takes time to kind of figure things out and what you need to do and who you can talk and who can help you and who's a good interview. And if you need a quote about boiling the game down to two sentences, Mike Jaminski was great. But, you know, you, you need to learn those things You need to be around and you need to develop relationships so they feel comfortable with you. So in those early days, you know, the first four or five years you know, what was it like to cover Charles Barkley on a relatively daily basis? It was very interesting because in those days, practice, they practiced at St. Joe's and practice was open. And so was the locker room after practice. So you would go sit in the locker room and Barkley would talk. He would go take a shower and you would wait for him to come back and he would continue talking. You were afraid to leave until he left and he would answer questions about anything and everything. So you really got spoiled in terms of access and you, you had a you, you never seemed to have a, a shortage of stories of things, you know, to write about. Um, and it's I think it was when Larry Brown was there, the league had started to change and then they started to close uh, practice. You could see the end of practice, but everything was open. I think in the playoffs, I think they closed practice. I think that was it. But in the regular season, it was available. So. You know, you had somebody who was very outspoken his last year. He wanted to be traded. He told us all that um, in 91, 92. He wasn't happy. He didn't think that ownership spent money uh, on the right places, was committed to winning and wanted, wanted, wanted money more than wanted a championship. Told us all he wanted out and it did eventually, you know, work his way out. And then this you know, franchise was not very good in the 90s, brought Larry Brown in, had that, you know, terrific year in 2001. But people don't you know, realize that, you know, I've been on the beat 33 years. They've, they've won the, they've had home court advantage twice in the conference playoffs in 33 years in 2001, when they made the finals and this year when they couldn't even make the finals, although they didn't have to play the bucks or the nets, they avoided them until the conference finals. They couldn't get past the Atlanta Hawks losing three out of four at home. So it was a, yeah, it was a very interesting time. And I, I, the, 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 they won the division in 89, 90, where they had that brawl at the palace with Barkley and Lambeer. That was crazy. Now that was nuts. And that was only my second year. And I had a feeling, and I asked Phil Jasner, have you seen anything like this? He said, I've never seen anything you know like this. So some of the stuff you had a sense was not regular, normal occurrences, but some of it, you know, you would think it was a big deal and you'd find out it would happen pretty regularly or Barkley would say this pretty regularly or whatever. So it was definitely an adjustment. It was a very interesting, interesting time. 
Who w- is there a player you would say is the the inverse of Charles? Somebody that you covered for a length of time and you know about as much about them at the end of their time in Philadelphia as you did at the beginning? Well, the modern group, even as recently as like seven years ago when Evan Turner was here and Thaddeus Young, you could still have conversations in the locker room and so on. But there's not a lot of that, you know, it, it even pre-COVID, there's just not a lot of interaction. It's the players don't want to go in the locker room beforehand because they might try to get cornered. So they kind of cruise through and head out to lift weights or take a shower or go to chapel or whatever it is. So it is hard. I've never really had a conversation with Ben Simmons or some other player, you know, modern players. Bill Lambeer was, I mean, he, he was an extremely difficult individual when they came in after they lost, I guess it was in the Eastern conference finals in like nine 89 came in and I was waiting to talk to him and he turns and he goes, are you trying to look in my locker? Now they were in the visiting locker room at the spectrum. Now what in the world you would bring to the spectrum in the visiting locker room? I have no idea. Um, And, you know, was gave very short answers and was very, you know, very difficult as I figured he would, but you know, you're young, you take a shot. So yeah, there were some characters, there were some people that were very difficult or you, you know, would were like pulling teeth. You couldn't get, you couldn't get anything. Jimmy Lynham was very colorful. He was, uh, I just told Jack McCaffrey this story. We were in Charlotte and what happened was it was like 89 or 90. They called a foul on the Sixers and the Hornets scored on that possession at the end of the quarter. They gave the Hornets two free throws. So they essentially it was double jeopardy. Somehow they did it. And the Sixers lost by like one or two after the game. So I think Bob Groats, it was asked Jimmy line. And when's the last time you saw that? And Jimmy, you know, who was wound pretty tight during the games. He says, how about the ice age? <laughs> and Jack and I, that was a recurring theme in the playoffs. We said next to each other when something would happen. You know, when's the last time the Sixers blew a 26 point lead in the playoffs? How about the ice age? I would imagine you're able to develop more of a rapport with head coaches just because for the most part, with the exception of maybe your stars, you talk to the players every three practices or something like that. But the coach, you're having multiple gaggles a day, probably stuff like that. Um, for the most part, are the head coaches about the the type of personality that the fans get to see? Or are there some that if you really got to know them, it's a completely different picture than what is portrayed in the media? Yeah, it's it's probably a, a, a hodgepodge, Matt. Some are pretty much exactly like you see, and some, you know, are not or have good days and bad days and are, are like you see one of the good days and then bad days can be difficult, you know, whatever. I mean, I would say my favorite Sixers coach was Mo Cheeks because in three and a half years as a coach, if he had a bad day, he didn't take it out on the media once. And I think Doc Rivers is the 16th coach I've covered. And that's the only guy that's ever done that. Even guys that are really good guys. I mean, they're human. They have bad days and they, they'll be short with the media. They, they don't, you know, they don't feel like dealing with it. And I understand that, but Cheeks was always, and Cheeks would always laugh at my jokes too. So I always, <laughs> I had, I had surgery on my, I had a meniscus surgery on my knee and I came back like three days later and Kyle Kaufman covered the team for the Del, for the uh, Westchester daily local said to Mo, can we do it over here? Tom just had surgery. And Mo said, all the stuff he gives me, and he didn't say the word stuff, but let's say stuff. We're doing it over there. He part, pointed across, and we he didn't do it. He laughed, and he came over, and we did it. 
but he was just great to deal with. And, you know, some of the coaches, Brett Brown was really good to deal with and, you know, had good conversations with and enjoyed, you know, talking about Leonardo DiCaprio as an actor and Kobe Bryant's day, you know, lower Marion, you know, coming to the Sixers and, and, you know, playing one-on-one with Vernon Maxwell as a high school junior, you know, that, that was the things I enjoyed is that the stuff the necessarily not the basketball stuff about the current team, the peripheral stuff, the, the background stuff. I enjoy that. And, you know, I've never, I haven't met Doc Rivers as the Sixers coach because we're not allowed. Everything's by zoom. Even though, I mean, I've talked to him and met him in the past when he coached the magic, the Celtics and the Clippers, but not as the Sixers head coach, same as Daryl Morey. How difficult is being a beat writer when the team is really bad? And I, I know they were bad at the beginning of the Brett Brown era, the process era, but I'm kind of thinking more that post Barkley when they were just in the wilderness, you know, when I remember the Johnny Davis era, John Lucas, where they yeah. not only weren't very good, there really didn't seem to be much direction. Doug Moe, like, are is that more challenging or in a way is it more fun because you get to be more creative because the team stinks on the court so you get to yeah. find other ways? How would you describe that? Well, see, it's, it's very different now because now it's all about online clip, clicks and getting online subscriptions. In those days, the problem was no one really cared, so it was about – buying the newspaper and people weren't going to buy the newspaper to see, you know, like Doug Moe told us, he thought the Sixers in training camp were going to win 50 games. Then the season started. He said, the reason he thought they were going to win 50 games because he didn't realize how bad the team was and they were playing against each other. (laughs) I mean, there was some, some funny, crazy stuff that, you know, that happened during the Doug Moe, Johnny Davis, uh, John Lucas's two years, you know, they were just kind of cycling guys in and out. It was different. Yeah, it was. I mean, John Lucas, you would sit with him and he'd say, I can't talk. I'm in a rush. And an hour later, you're sitting there and he's still talking, you know, like about life, you know, on and on his past, you know, playing for the Rockets, playing tennis at Maryland as an All-American, like, you know, just going on and on and on. So it was very interesting, but I don't think people cared as much. The better the team is, the more the interest is. But then you want to try to get an angle that somebody else doesn't have, you know, that for people to read it. So it was different and it was fun at times, but you knew that the casual fans didn't care, certainly the way they did in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, with Iverson and the last three or four years, you know, with uh, with Embiid and Simmons. That that Doug Moe, and it wasn't even a year, right? I don't that he, he Yeah, wasn't. he was fired. Jimmy Lyon was the GM. He had to fly out to Minnesota. They lost by like 40 in Minnesota. He fired him. And then Freddie Carter was his lone assistant, took over, finished that year. And then the next year, because they didn't want to pay, they already were paying whoever the previous coach was. They didn't want to pay three coaches. They almost hired Chris Ford. So, yeah, then they then they brought in John Lucas, and that lasted two years and, you know, was a great guy, but was like a halfway house for guys that were in trouble and trying to resurrect their careers from Vernon Maxwell to Richard Dumas to Lloyd Daniels, and it was crazy. How does covering Barkley compare with covering – Iverson was it similar I mean obviously different personalities but how did covering an elite you know one of the best players in NBA history how were those experiences compare and contrast them well the 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 big thing was the availability you saw practice with Barkley you know you saw what was going on and then you had access to him in the locker room 
with Iverson, um, we'd get him maybe every two weeks during practice. It, it was, he didn't like to talk at practice. He'd talk after games, but he didn't like talking at practice. And we would only get to see typically like the end of practice or, or whatever. So you didn't get to see a whole heck of a lot. So it was different. Sometimes he was real good with us. You know, the PR director would say two more questions and he'd say, I'm good. We can keep talking. And then other times he wanted to get done and, you know, could be, you know, I don't want to say confrontational, but certainly questioning the motives of reporters or whatever. He was very suspicious, I guess, you know, of the media. So it was quite different. And, you know, the league was changing. The availability was changing. As I said, the access was changing. So it was a very different. It would have been interesting to see if Iverson were a star like in the mid late 80s into the 90s, like Barkley was, what would have been like with more access, both after practice and watching practice, it would have been interesting to see. Because we would hear, you know, oh, he's not at practice, he's late to practice, but we didn't know. So you just have to take the PR staff's word for it. And they don't want controversy. So you don't know if you're always necessarily getting the, you know, the full story there. 2001 run to the NBA finals with Iverson leading the way, Larry Brown, head coach. How much fun was it to cover that team, that season, that ride? Yeah, I mean, it's the only time in 33 years the Sixers have gotten past the second round. Um, I think this was the 10th time they made this. They made the conference semifinals, and they're 1-9. and nine. Uh, The only win was the, the, the first time they had home court advantage because they lost to Jordan and the Bulls a couple times. They lost to the Pacers a couple of times. They lost to the Celtics, you know. So, yeah, it was – and people kind of forget they were 41-14 and 14 in cruising, and Theo Ratliff broke his wrist. And that started the whole thing. And Larry Brown was the head coach of the all-star team. And they put the game was down in Washington. I went and they got behind big time. And he played four little guys in Matumbo, Iverson, Marbury, and I forget the other two um, and Matumbo. And they came from behind and won. And he kind of fell in love with that big shot blocker interior guy. So they probably wouldn't have made the trade if, if, if Ratliff didn't get hurt. Um, and they made the finals, but they they really did not play very well the rest of the regular season and were a Vince Carter 20-footer away from losing game seven in the second round and were a five-footer by uh, Big Dog Robinson in game five, probably away from losing this, the conference finals in six games. So, they, you know, they were very gritty. Um, it, it was Iverson shoots and everybody else does the dirty work. But it's kind of funny. I was invited, my wife and I were invited to a wedding in Northern California that year. And that's the only time we've been invited to a wedding, Memorial Day weekend, and the only time in 33 years that we couldn't go. Any other year, we would have been able to go. But it was, yeah, when the team is winning in the city, like I went out to L.A. and they won game one, and then they lost game two, and then coming back, I remember driving home from the airport and just seeing all the Sixers flags and the way, you know, with games three, four, and five in Philly, I wasn't around for four or five days. So you didn't have a have a real sense like they were into it in the conference finals, but it went to a whole other level. You really didn't have a sense of how, you know, starved they were for, you know, another champion. I guess it had been uh, at that point, I guess the Sixers in 83, right? The Flyers mm-hmm. hadn't won it. The Phillies hadn't yeah. won it. The Eagles hadn't won it. So they it had been 18 years and, you know, they were three wins away and they had three home games. Now, unfortunately for the Sixers, you know, the, the Lakers really kind of woke up and, you know, uh, you know, Shaq and Kobe and all he needed was one other guy, whether it's Rick Fox or, or uh, big shot, Robert had a big Robert Ory, Brian Shaw, any of those, one of those guys played well, the Sixers were in big trouble and, but it was a heck of a run, but you know, then the next year the Sixers lost in the first round and trading for Matumbo, they got older and they had guys that wanted to run Iverson, Snow, McKee. 
And then they had guys, they, they brought, they brought Coleman back and Coleman and Matumbo wanted to walk it up. So you kind of had to figure out what you were. They recycled, you know, made some trades and they kind of went through stretches where they tried to be a defensive team. Then Billy King, they tried to be an offensive team and they, it really just didn't, you know, didn't work until they kind of blew it up. They did beat the the bulls uh, with Doug Collins after uh, in the first round, after Derek Rose, towards ACL in the last minute of a game, they're up double digits. I've never understood college or pro the idea of keeping your stars in late in games, just because I guess I'm so I worry so much. I would just think nothing good can happen here. Right. And that was the series that they, 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 they ate one, they won that one and they would never have won it in, I guess it was oath. What was it? 12. I guess it was, they never would have won it if not for Derek Rose tearing his ACL and missing the rest of the series. So um, yeah, it's been a, a real roller coaster ride in terms of success, failure, high draft picks, going to the lottery. We used to say Billy King could stay at his own. He had his own suite up in Secaucus for the lottery. They were up there so you know so often. Um, but yeah, it's been a real you know, and it it's cyclical. You know, the Sixers window. You know, I I think of Dan Marino who made the Super Bowl as a rookie and then 16 years played 16 more years as a Hall of Fame quarterback, never made it back. You never know what's going to happen. You don't know what in trades, dissension, injuries, you know, whatever it is, there are no guarantees. That's why I think the fans were so disappointed this year because everything couldn't have been set up better. Um, They were healthy going into the playoffs. They had the right teams they were playing and they still couldn't get it done. Time for a break on -on one-on-one. We will have more with Bucks County Courier Times sports columnist, Tom Moore, right after this. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest this week, Tom Moore of the Bucks County Courier Times. You mentioned several stories, several coaches or whatever. Who were some of your favorite players just that were here for, you know, longer than maybe half a season or whatever? Who were some of the guys you really came to appreciate, you know, for their thoughtfulness, their availability, stuff like that? Yeah, Scotty Brooks, who, you know, had coached uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder and the – and the Wizards, who, who just, uh, I, I believe, just uh, stepped down from that job. He started as an undrafted free agent, I think, my second year. Um, so I got to know him well. I always liked Willie Green, got along really well with him. Just a good guy. You could have conversations about family and other things like that. The late Derek Smith, um, who came here in those good Barkley years, who had been a star and then kind of was uh, had a knee injury with the Clippers and then kind of was on the recycle, the, the recycle bin and came back a second time and was part of that division champion team. Just a really good dude trying to think who else there were, you know, I, I, I enjoyed Barkley. I was only there for one year for cheeks, but yeah, there were some really good guys, you know, guys that you could chat with or contact or, you know, discuss things, you know, that were, uh, you know, just really enjoyable and not about X's and O's or we got to be, you know, we got to win this next game. So we get the third seed or that kind of stuff. And that is generally not the case these days. There's not a lot of that. And that's just the way things have gone. That's, that's the lack of access and the change in temperament and availability. Who are the best basketball minds that you've covered? Maybe not just the people that really were sharp about the game or the business or what they were trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy Lynham was really, really bright. And one of the writers would try to kind of ask him like a four question thing where he's leading up to something. 
And Jimmy would sniff it out on the first question. He wouldn't even answer the first question, let alone the second and third to get to the fourth. And he, yeah, he was, he was really good to, you know, to deal with. And he was asked one time his angle on a certain play. And he said, being a math major, it was about 74 degrees, you know, stuff like that. It sticks out in your head. Brad Greenberg, who was the GM for Johnny Davis, was a really good basketball mind. But the problem was when Pat Croce hired him, he didn't know anybody. So he couldn't make a trade because he didn't know anybody. And that's one of probably the most surreal thing I ever covered would have been that year in 97 at the trade deadline. They had a meeting Croce had with fans, the season ticket holders, to express bless their displeasure, express their displeasure. Croce came out in a hockey mask as a joke. No one laughed. They were railing on Derek Coleman's overweight. I can't give my tickets away. In the middle of the meeting, Brad Greenberg, Greenberg comes out and announces, we didn't make any trades. The trade deadline was right then. And this is your team for the rest of the year. I mean, you couldn't script it better. They were playing the Clippers and Brent Barry sat on the scorer's table with a ball under his knee and watched it. He said, I've never seen anything before or since. Like it was you know, the, the, there are once in a lifetime things, the quadruple bouncer, you know, with with uh, Kawhi Leonard. And that was an, an event. I asked Phil and Phil was like, this is uncharted waters like this has never happened. This will never happen again. So there were some strange. Another one, Johnny Davis came up the press box at the spectrum and announces we just waved Lloyd Daniels after the game and walks down. Phil and I are running after him trying to fight. Like, what? He's like, well, he said, play me or, or get rid of me. And I said, okay, you're cut. And like, this is 1030 on a Wednesday night after they just lost to the Atlanta Hawks. Like, you know, stuff, you know, I tell people things and they don't believe that they're true, but I'm not creative enough to make them up. You get to cover and write about other stuff, you know, in addition to the Sixers. How much of a release is that? As much as you enjoy covering the Sixers, I would imagine it's nice to, 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 kind of uh, take on another, take a look at another pasture and get to know people in a different field? Yeah, you know, doing some Phillies and doing some Eagles. And I, I did some flyers for about a year or so. And that was the toughest one because Phillies and Eagles, you kind of follow, you have a general idea, but the flyers is more of a, almost like a niche or a cult, a smaller group of people that are really into it. And if you don't know what you're talking about, they're going to tell you about it. So I would pick, you know, Wayne Fish's brain, and Dave Isaac uh, from the Courier Post, you know, other guys just ask them questions just to try to figure out what's, you know, what's going Sam Carcitti, you know, to help me to get to the point where I could write stuff and I wouldn't get bombarded with saying, what are you talking about? You don't know, you know, who are the lines at practice today? That was the toughest one. Villanova basketball I enjoy doing with Jay Wright, you know, is so good to deal with, um, you know, kind of just a little bit of this. But I miss going to the Eagles on a Friday. And going over to like Brandon Brooks and talking to him for 10 minutes about investing in minority owned companies and helping with, you know, minorities invest their, their, their saving, you know, not necessarily football stories, but offshoots of football stories, you know, stuff like that. I really enjoyed doing that. And it's just hard because now if you do that and a beat writer finds out that the PR did it for you, there are going to be 20 beat writers saying, I want to talk to this guy. I want to talk to that guy. So, as I said, that's why you're kind of stuck in this packed journalism mode, because it, it, it's the circumstances and it's easier for everybody involved. But for the reader, you, you, you know, you read essentially the same story 15 different times or that's what's available to you. Let's put it that way. You're pretty active on Twitter. 
Um, do you enjoy it, or is it a necessary part that you feel to get your work out there? I mean, I generally enjoy it. People are, are usually nice, but like uh, late in the season when they were winning like nine in a row, I wrote something which Doc Rivers talked about and Danny Green that they had a couple of close wins against teams that were decimated by injuries. And I just wrote what they said, that this is not helping them get ready for, you know, get ready for the playoffs. This is not preparing the Sixers for situations in the playoffs where they're going to play at least a decent team and a close game where you're going to have four of your top five players out. And boy, the people, I I guess they were so gaga at that time. And they thought, I, I think sometimes there's a disconnect and they think that you're supposed to write positive stuff. And that's not my job. I don't work for the Sixers. I don't write about, you know, my job is not to say things are great and, you know, the Sixers bench is wonderful and, you know, so on. So generally they're pretty good. Or if they're angry, I'll, I'll reply. Now, if they're personal or they're really rude, I just ignore them. I'll I'll mute them. But generally the people are pretty nice. Like I'll put on uh, generally, if I know someone's name, I'll say, well, what I understand, John, is that so-and-so. And every once in a while they'll say, well, why did you call this person by his first name? And I said, well, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. You make it personal. It's not like me demeaning someone else. And then fortunately, people see me enough that other people will say, hey, this is he's nice. And I've had other writers say, I wish I were as I don't know what the word is. I wouldn't take things as per like I don't take it personally unless they're really bad. And then generally I just ignore like that. That story I wrote about how bad things were at the you know end of games and how it wasn't going to help. People told me I should delete it. People told me that I must have a horrible home life. And I like it. it, it this is what, this is what um, Doc Rivers and, and Danny Green both were saying, like, this is not a stretch. And they were right, by the way, you notice they didn't do so well in close games against the Atlanta Hawks. And it wasn't necessarily their, you know, their fault. I think they were bored and they're playing bad teams. They're going through the motions, but all I was trying to say, I think the term is fool's gold. You keep winning games, but you beat a bad team without three of the top five players it doesn't really help you much other than it helps you get the top seed, but it doesn't help you prepare you. And that's all I was saying. So once in a while, people will surprise me with how negative you know they are or how they take things like that. But I think it was part of it was they were so into the Sixers and they were so convinced this was going to be a, you know, a deep run. They were going to at least make the conference finals, if not the NBA finals, that they thought it was being negative. And it's not. It's just doing what I see as my job is to write things that I think that are about that are important. I just realized that we haven't talked, we haven't mentioned the name Sam Hinkie, and he probably one of the most talked about portions of Sixers basketball were the Sam Hinkie years. What was he like to deal with? Was he, were you able to deal with him off the record more than maybe on the record? Because he seemed like a very guarded figure, uh, but I have heard people talk about that you know, he could pull you aside or if you, you worked it right, he, he'd give you what you need. Yeah. He, the better you were, the more information you had, he would help you confirm it. Like I, I found out the first time that Embiid went to Cutter. It looks like Qatar, but apparently it's right. pronounced Cutter um, to rehab the knee. I found it about it. I sent him a text 30 seconds later, the phone rings. Cause you know, he wants to manage. He doesn't wants to, he wants to make sure he gets out there that this is not a setback, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it, it, you know, that kind of thing, but it was very good on background helping you uh, off the record. Um, I remember one Friday, I forget what happened. 
he called me or whatever and they had a game and we were talking for like an hour and I'm like, well, I got to, you know, I got to get going. I got to take a shower, get out of the game. He's like, no, what else you got? You know, like what I ask him all kinds of stuff. He was really into basketball and he really enjoyed the back and forth, especially in a, like a one-on-one situation. I, I did a story a week before he resigned and I think he may have known it was coming, but I got in touch with his high school football coach and one of his teammates. Originally, he had agreed that he would talk to me on background about it, but that was it. And then I got a text saying, I'm flying to Houston. Why don't we do the interview via text? So we did the entire interview. And I mean, some of his responses must have been 200 words. Like we did the whole interview about his high school days and the lessons he learned. I mean, he must have written me 1,200 words in the responses. Like it was, you know, and it was, it was, it was really good stuff. And, you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, you know, you know, working with him and I had a good relationship with him. It didn't mean I always wrote or agreed with everything that he did. His, you know, his, what he did was, you know, the trading Drew Holiday was because he was out a four-year, $44 million extension was coming in the next year. That was going to tie up the cap. He wanted time. So he traded him for Nerlens Noel, got a bunch of rookies, young guys, lost, continued to get high draft picks and ended up getting Embiid. And he wasn't here, but the pick that became Ben Simmons, Dario Saric, you know, all those guys that helped the Sixers, you know, take the steps. But yeah, I, I liked them and I um, enjoyed him. And appreciate him, really, to be honest with you. I uh, I look back on that time fondly. Um, I, one of the last times he talked to me on the record was before a game when they played Houston the first time. And I asked him a few softball questions. And then I asked him, I said, why is Kwame Brown still on the team? Because he was an older guy. He was out of shape. And he laughed and laughed and laughed. Now, on the record, he said, that's one of the most inappropriate questions anyone's ever asked me. And that's what I wrote on the record. So it looked like he was angry. He was not angry. He said the right thing to support his player. I didn't say he'd laugh beforehand. So, but that was one of the last times we talked. I, I just happened to grab him behind the bench before then that we talked one-on-one on the record, shall we say. But, it, you know, he had a good sense of humor and some very interesting ideas. How do you think the Sixers' trajection would be, would be different if he wasn't resigned, forced out, however you want to, you know, if he was still here? And he was still allowed the same amount of control that he had had, you know, during his time, his tenure. Yeah, I think the question was, I think they were, uh, you know, Josh Harris and uh, uh, Scott O'Neill, I believe, and others were kind of tired of waiting for taking the next step because he loved the idea of rebuilding. You know, when you're in your fourth year and you're still rebuilding, you know, um, I think they wanted to. All right. It's time to step forward. It's time we got to sign a free agent. You know, we got to start taking it from, you know, 10 and 72 and start working our way back up to, you know, winning uh, half of our games or whatever. And I think if had Embiid not gotten injured um, that his third year, which was his first year of playing and then missed the last couple months because he had, I think, a think it was a meniscus or whatever it was. You know, I think that may have changed. They may have pushed forward then, but I think that kind of caused him to pull, pull up the reins a little bit. And I think there was concern that this process can't, it can't be five years of getting our heads beat in. We need to start, you know, moving forward. And I think maybe they were concerned. He was in love with the idea of rebuilding and, and the whole idea of getting second round picks six years down the road. He, he just liked stockpiling and sort of the art of the deal and, you know, moving, 
you know, future assets, but at some point you got to jump ahead. And I think that was at least the perception, you know, was what happened. I don't know. Uh, I asked him after he took Jaleel Okafor, would you have taken Okafor if Embiid weren't injured? And he said, I would like to think this was the day after the draft. I would like to think we would have, but I don't know for sure. Because at that point, you don't know if Embiid's going to play with his foot and so on. As it turns out, Embiid and Okafor couldn't play together. Okafor would have been effective 25 or 30 years ago the way he played in the low post. Um, So that probably was not an ideal pick. But, you know, I I don't know what he was expecting. Now, had Embiid been injured and never been able to play, then Okafor would have been the center and maybe it's a different story. So, you know... Some very interesting stuff um, and, uh, you know, just a, a totally unprecedented time in Sixer history. Another unprecedented time was the whole Brian Colangelo burner Twitter account. What was that like to talk about, cover, learn about? Because you talk about surreal and uncharted territory. That was that that's up there. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, it's funny. After the fact, I looked at it and every one of those accounts followed me and I had interacted with some of them, but I didn't know. It would be like a name and a bunch of numbers, but I had no idea that who this was. And they would be somewhat in support of him, but sometimes people supported him. You know, most people were, you know, upset about Hinky, so it was negative, but it wasn't like they were the only people. Yeah, it was, that was really, really strange, the whole, you know, situation. Jerry Colangelo was very good to deal with, um, friendly, you know, would talk to you, would give you quotes. Brian was a little more reserved, a little more kind of above it all. You know, yeah, I, I, that was really, really strange. And, you know, he didn't do it. But, boy, there was a lot of information there that sure looked like it had to be somebody close to him. Uh, yeah, that was you're right. I I kind of forgot about that. I mean, Sixers fans have it and they would get on him for those giant collars that he wore and, you know, all, all that stuff. I texted him a few times after the fact just to see how he's doing, say hi. Uh, I haven't done it in a few years anyway. Uh, I mean, I got along OK with him. He was not the most forthcoming guy and, you know, with us, but wow. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's like a buried. Yeah. It was just totally, I can't even explain how surreal that whole situation was. Like that's another never before and probably never happened again. And there were like five of them and they all followed me every single one of them. <laughs> it was nuts, I guess. Cause they wanted to see what people that covered the team yeah. were writing about, you know, do you enjoy the job as much as you did? 85 86 87 88 the early years i mean i enjoy the job it's very different you know it's as i said just between access and i miss walking in the locker room and bsing with the players whether it was like i said scotty brooks or you know willie green or even more recent like i said thaddeus young or just got you know just being able to kind of have a casual conversation with nothing nobody worried about anybody writing anything and you know, it was also easier in those days with no Twitter and no video. So you didn't have to worry about stuff. Now, you know, one time a few years ago, one of the players said something jokingly to us and somebody from out of town didn't know it and wrote it like it was real. And you got to say, look, like that was a joke, but you, they arrived late and they didn't realize it was a joke. It was something about Michael Jordan or Nike or something. I forget the exact circumstances. I enjoy it, but it's hard to, you know, the better the team is, the better the beat is. But it was hard to beat that, you know, like 89-90. You know, it was hard to beat 90-91, you know, with Mahorn and Barkley and uh, Hersey Hawkins. Uh, Hers- as they would say on WIP, why isn't Jimmy Lyman playing Hershey Hawkins back in the day? But I enjoy it. Probably not quite as much. It's different. 
I miss, as I said, I miss the access and I miss some of the, just how looser things were and less kind of uptight and less controlled. But, you know, it's just, that's the evolution of things 33 years later. For young journalists, what would your advice be to them just getting into the business, not necessarily for a beat or columnist, but just in general, getting into sports journalism or journalism as a whole? I always tell people, read whatever you read, whatever you like, and try to understand what the writer does that you like. It doesn't have to be, it could be a short story, it could be a novel, it could be a biography, it could be a column, it could be news, it could be sports, it could be a feature, it could be a game story. Why do you like this article? What do you like about this? And try to learn what they do to be effective and see if you can incorporate that into what you do. Uh, but yeah, to write for whoever you can, uh, don't, when you're younger, don't worry, you know, pay. If you don't get paid or you only get a few dollars based on how many hits you get, get your feet wet, see what you can do and see, you know, maybe you have an affinity for this. Maybe it, you know, and papers are co- hiring young people out of school, especially some of the union papers and so on, because they hire people that have been around longer to pay more money. So there are some opportunities for young, younger people um, to get their feet in the door at smaller papers, mid-sized papers, bigger papers, you know, under the circumstances. But I wouldn't discourage them. It's not the same as certainly it was 10, 20, 30, 35 years ago, but I would read, as I said, just appreciate, you know, whatever it is, why do you like it and what do they do? And what's my writing style? What am I trying to do? How do I decide what I'm going to do? Um, if it's a column, can I, can I bring the beginning and, and at the end, bring it back to the beginning to kind of complete the circle? Is there a way to do that? Um, how are my transitions? Am I just using quote, 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 transition, quote, quote, can I be more creative? You know, just things like that. It's, and there's a lot of really good writers out there, young men, women, in their twenties and in their sixties, like, um, and there's a lot of, you know, it's enjoyable reading people and seeing people progress, you know, as writers. I knew Mike Sielski when he was in high school, he used to respect me and then he got to know me and he realized that was, that was a mistake. (laughs) Tom Moore. Thanks so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Sure, Matt. Anytime. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Tom Moore of the Bucks County Career Times for being our guest this week. If you like this show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. Now you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon ten sixty. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.